Why are you building right now? Well, because where the cap rates were and where the rents were, we could literally go build a deal from the ground up and pay less per unit for brand new product than what things are trading for on the open market. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape Wall Street and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Glenn Gonzalez. Glenn is the maintenance man who became a millionaire through multifamily real estate investing. Glenn has been on the show before, and today he's coming back to teach us about his thoughts on the current state of the multifamily market, how he achieved what he has achieved, and so much more. It's great to have conversations with folks who are successful and who have gotten to a place where we want to be. And for those of you out there who maybe are the maintenance man who wants to become a millionaire, this just might be the interview to listen to. Glenn's gotten so much done. He's a very prolific multifamily real estate investor, very knowledgeable and also very friendly and sharing in this interview. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage real estate. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. That's when we're helping you escape Wall Street and build wealth on Main Street. Once again, our guest today is Glenn Gonzalez, the maintenance man who became a millionaire or multimillionaire if we're being real at this point built so much and is sharing a lot of great multifamily knowledge with us today. Without any further ado, here we go. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today, for coming back on the show. Looking forward to reconnecting and learning more of your wisdom here today. But for our listeners out there who somehow missed your first interview on the show, can you tell us about yourself, your investing background, and being the maintenance man who became a multimillionaire? (laughs) Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for having me back. I'm pretty excited to be with you again. It's been a little bit. So yeah, you know, I uh, started off in the industry, gosh, probably 25 years ago. And I started off as a maintenance man while I was going to college. And I was paying apartments, fixing toilets, picking up trash, you know, basic introduction stuff to maintenance. And then later on got the opportunity. I told my boss, hey, I don't want to be a maintenance man my whole life. I kind of want to be one of those property managers that sit in the office and talk on the phone all day. I want to be that guy. You know, and they're like, ah, oh, well, aren't you the maintenance guy? I'm like, yeah, I am. They're like, well, we'll give you a shot someday. So then I transitioned, had the opportunity to, to go and manage a little, I think it was a 60 unit apartment complex that I was part-time manager, part-time maintenance. And that was my introduction. Well, fast forward a few years, I've worked with some larger companies, Equity Residential, which is a big national REIT. I worked for a Pacific Property Company, which renamed itself, rebranded itself later, but it was, you know, affiliated with Sam Zale and, uh, you know, just, uh, and, well, not Sam Zale, that was the equity residential. Oh, Marcus Milchap. So uh, George Marcus started a privately owned company and I was on the asset management side there, got lots of experience. And one day kind of realized that most of the people that are making a lot of money in the multifamily business were the ones that owned it, not the ones that managed it. So I, you know, once again, it's like, I want to be that guy, you know, putting the deals together, not this guy managing them for somebody else. So that whole story, Taylor, is in my book, uh, Maintenance Man a Millionaire. And I was encouraged to write that by other people. I've never thought of myself as an author or writer, but everybody liked that story. And that's kind of my introduction in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, appreciate you bringing us up to speed. So 
just tell us where you are today, what your portfolio you know consists of and what, what you're doing so we can set the stage to get into how you plan on you know, dealing with this higher interest rate environment that we find ourselves in. You bet. You know, I think part of leading up to where I am today, you have to take a look backwards too. You know, I mean, we we purchased about, I don't know, 6,000 units. And at one point I purchased a 650 unit deal with a family office out of San Diego. And, and, and we, you know, 650 units, I kind of looked at that like, oh my gosh, that's way out of my reach. But, you know, we pulled it down and and, and, and bought it and did very well on it, sold it. I bought 1,500 units from one guy. So he, he on his 80th birthday, I had a, a relationship with this guy for about, about 10 years. And when he turned 70, I'm like, dude, you got to sell your property. I want to I buy your company from you. Well, when he turned 80, he's like, you don't think about selling. And I'm like, oh, really? It's about time, you know? So, you know, Ed kind of, but he wanted to sell me his property management company, not necessarily apartment complexes and and I, you know, as a means to an end, I purchased his management company with the contingency that he'd sell me all eight of his apartment complexes that kind of came with it. And he agreed to that. So again, that was going through family office, private equity firm, and two different crowdfunding firms. But we ended up buying all 1,500 units from this guy. He let us stagger the closings. So we spread them out over a few months, which kind of helped us onboard that. So Think about the time that we did that. Interest rates were really low. Fannie and Freddie gave high leverage, low interest. There was capital moving out in the marketplace. And we really capitalized on all of those variables that really don't exist today, right? They're, they're different. We'll talk about those in a little while. But when 17, 18, 19 hit and people were looking at very, very low cap rates, you know, artificially low cap rates with you know, available capital out there, I'm like, time to sell because that's where we were in the cycle at the time. So my portfolio, I hit, I think peaked at 6,000 units and then we got down to about 2,000 units. And now where we are today, they're very, very selective on what we actually put under contract and what we buy. And we'll get into kind of the details of what that really looks like and how the, the change in strategy is really kind of in my investor's best interest, right? Because what used to work then on the value add might not necessarily be working today. Yeah, so that's kind of an introduction of where we are kind of looking backwards. Hopefully I didn't derail your questions there, but. No, not at all. I certainly appreciate that. And I, I wonder just the the perspective, you know, with, with people looking for all the glamour metrics today of X thousands of doors or hundreds of millions of dollars or what have you of assets under management, going from 6,000 to 2,000, but thinking this is the right move. I have legitimate reasons for doing it. I think a lot of people wouldn't be willing to take that step and sell off that much of a portfolio and say, you know, more focused on doing what I think is right than having the maximum number of doors yeah. under management possible. Yeah. That must have been difficult to go through. Well, I've never been one to put my success or my, what am I trying to say, my portfolio size. I never really counted doors. I never really counted kind of where I was. I really, each deal I looked at individually and what the strategy was for that group of investors. Now, granted, some investors were in multiple deals and some investors were only in one deal. And one of those might've been a value add, one of them might've been just a yield play or a little combination of both, you know, very little, you know, renovation with a marginal bump in rents, but, you know, real full, always stable, you know, no risk, you know, good quarterly returns. So 
every deal was just a little bit, but it got to the point, Taylor, where all of those deals like were really picked over, right? And I could have opted to say, hey, look, you guys, why don't we hold on to the, to the portfolio and not sell? Well, then I would be facing today, right? With the rising interest rates and cap rates are going to eventually rise as well, which are lower values. And I know that right now, I, I can't speak for all sellers, but I know they're not getting what they thought they were going to get when they put it up for sale. That's already kind of happening. I say that because I look at some of those deals, I pass on it. Some of the brokers may call me back and like, hey, you want to relook at this? We've got fresh you know, financials. And I ask them, well, did it help or hurt? And they're like, well, we're, we're considering price adjustments for guidance. You know, so you have those kind of conversations, <laughs> which in all actuality, Taylor, it's like, I'm glad I sold when I did because I couldn't have hit the mark any better than I did. You know, cap rates were three, three and a quarter, four, you know, and I didn't buy them at that. You know, I bought them in sevens, eights, you know, and, uh, and then I raised the rent on top of that. So I really got two things, right? Some higher NOI and then lower cap rates really kind of did it for the investors, right? And when they make money, I make money. The way I structure my deals is I don't get paid until they get their, their return. I'm in it for them. People, my son, my kids, they ask, dad, what do you really do for a living? And I, I kind of tell them, it's hard to explain that I syndicate deals and, you know, I structure deals with partnerships. But in the end, I tell them my job is to make money for other people. And when they make money, they pay me because they're happy. That's what I do. And in a nutshell, they kind of get that. So, Great. Well, that's a great way to look at it. So you've, you know, we've kind of touched a little bit on what you think is coming down the road or how you're positioning to do deals, the types of things that you're looking for in deals moving forward for the next maybe couple of years during this market cycle. So let's dive even, even deeper into that. And you know, what are you looking for these days? And what do you see, you know, on the horizon for the next couple of years? Yeah, great question. So right now, I'll just tell you what I have currently in my portfolio. So we recently worked out a deal directly with an owner. He built some flex space, some offices with warehouse attached to them. He was the original developer. He put, he got a full, we struck a deal on the purchase price. I kind of retraded him a little bit because the interest rates were a little higher and, and he agreed and we bought that, but it's got a, it's kind of like a 9% cash on cash return from day one. So, you know, I mean, we just, close that. Maybe it's a little different than multifamily, right? But the, the components are very, very similar. That was in a place just outside of Fort Worth. You know, right now we're looking at a place just outside of Dallas, you know, just north, northeast of Dallas. And there's an owner there that, you know, wants to sell, but he can't, nobody will come close to his, to his asking price. So we threw it out there. It's like, why don't you consider some seller finance for us right now? And this is the interest rate we'll pay on the seller finance. That'll get you your sales price you want, but it might not get you all the proceeds you want because you got to carry a note back. And believe it or not, he's considering that, Taylor. So, you know, I guess when this podcast comes out in February, maybe you can call me and see, did he actually, did we close the transaction? <laughs> so we're, we're in a little back and forth right now. The reason I share that with you is because the stuff that's in the core markets, I have not seen the cap rates adjust where the interest rates are. So, you know, if you're trying to buy something on a four cap, but you're trying to finance it at a 7% interest rate and with lower leverage, I mean, you're really, you're, you'll have zero cash flow at the end of the day. You know, something's got to give. It's a tough time right now for both sellers and buyers, to be honest with you. And it's a weight game. 
And Taylor, my next strategy going into 2023 and 2024 is I'm going to look at deals, you know, and I, and I hope these are not your listeners, (laughs) but there will be some people that got some bridge loans that had higher leverage that have to refinance out. And some of those guys are going to be faced with two choices, sell the property at the end of their loan term because they can't get a higher leverage or into some Fannie or Freddie product. So those bridge loans, it's going to be tough for the lenders. It's going to be tough for the borrowers. Or somebody like me will come in like, let me just cover your debt service and I'll buy it from you. Well, that's going to hurt a lot of people because they're going to be like, well, what about all my equity I put into it? Their alternative will be bring more equity to the table and refinance out. But that's really, those will be, you know, for a majority of the people that borrowed money from bridge lenders in the last 48 months, that's what they're going to be faced with in the next 12 months if they had a, you know, two or three year bridge loan. So I'm going to go after some of those. I'm going to go after some of those loans that are in trouble, that people don't have the capital, or I might restructure them. You know, that'll be a very unique way. I have a friend of mine, um, he wanted to buy a deal and, and he wanted to come in and actually just buy the shares from the existing LLC. So this might be an interesting strategy for some of your listeners as well. So, you know, my, so I helped structure that, which led to another opportunity where a guy just built a brand new apartment complex down in San Antonio and he uh, has one of the HUD loans on it, right? 35 year amortization, very low interest rate, but it only has 50% leverage on it. So you got to come up with the other 50%. So I talked to him about, well, why don't you just, instead of selling the property, why don't you sell me the partnership? Let me cash out the investors that are in there give them a return, I'll buy their shares from them, right? So then the entity doesn't really change hands. The LLC is still in place. You don't necessarily have to buy a new seller's owner's title policy because it's the same loan. It's the same LLC, the same borrower technically. It's just that in that aspect, HUD will have to approve, you know, members coming in and members going out because that's, that's not something you as a sponsor can do on your own. You need permission from the lender. But we're going to structure some of those deals too, right? And the exiting investors will get a good, the, the sponsor that put the deal together, will, that'll solve his problem and he'll get some of his equity out. But the guy that wants to buy some property that doesn't have anywhere to find deals, he's like, well, that's a great alternative. And that one, Taylor, I'm working directly, you know, owner to owner with another sponsor because we're friends in the industry. So people often ask me, you know, how do you find deals? Well, just like this, you talk to people who talk to people been doing it for 30 years. Sometimes people call me on the phone, like, hey, Glenn, got a deal, you know, or people just say, hey, what do I do? I'm in this situation. And I'm like, well, let's talk about some of the options, da, 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 you know? So they just, some of them just fall in my lap, you know, but it's taken kind of 30 years to get to the point where they just fall in your lap. So, and, and Mike, who's my business partner, Mike Woodfield, you know, he and I are very, very conservative in our underwriting. We're not putting a lot of rent growth in right now. We always raise a rainy day fund when we structure a deal. So we actually put money in a savings account just in case something bad happens. Very unique times right now. Certainly. So I'm hearing, just to try to pull a few key takeaways out of that, moving forward, you're going to be looking for deals where the current owners maybe had shorter term financing at lower interest rates and maybe more aggressive business plans that relied on an exit in a lower interest rate environment or a refinance in some kind of a lower interest rate environment that 
you're not anticipating that will be in such a low interest rate environment down the road. And your goal is to find those distressed owners and try to make a way to structure a deal, whether it's buying out the existing partnership, covering the just covering the debt to kind of get people out, depending on how what the level of, level of distress is in the deal, or just finding a way to to make a deal work in that environment, but you're anticipating that that's where the opportunity is going to be, is that people who are in these more risky debt situations. Yeah. Yep. That's correct. I'm getting you right. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I have another little strategy that Mike and I have put together. It's on smaller deals, you know, and I tell you, a lot of the financial advisors think this is a bad idea, but you know, we're doing it anyway, right? And that is, we're going to bring some investors together that would want to strike quickly that we could pay cash for a property. So I don't need to worry about what the interest rates are, you know, because if you could afford to pay 7% interest to a loan, why don't you just give that 7% to an investor? They'd be happy with that, you know? And then you don't have to worry about, you know, loan origination fees and all the other stuff that are associated with closing a loan and we'll just own it free and clear. We'll enjoy the cash flow. We'll raise the rent. Now, when the interest rates do come down, it'll be very easy because we have no debt on the property to refinance out, which means I'll return a lot, if not most of the capital back to the investors, and then they get to keep the deal, right? So some financial advisors you know, say, well, if you don't have you know, leverage on there, it really dilutes your IRR, which is a true statement, right? But it really lowers the risk. So if people are not doing deals because of the interest rates are so high right now that it turns them off. Gosh, let's just give that to the investors. We may be doing smaller deals, you know, because we're paying cash, but, you know, it's still doable. Okay. So you mentioned a few metrics in there as well, as far as, you know, and, and I don't mean this as a, as a dig on you at all. Go with me here, but kind of everybody. <laughs> That's okay. Everybody digs says, on me. <laughs> we do. Con- <laughs> no, I don't mean that. Kind of everybody says we do conservative underwriting, right? You look out there, look at anybody's offering memorandum or what they're saying about their deals. We underwrite conservatively. And you gave a few examples of ways in which or things that you seem to consider conservative. And that was not underwriting rent increases and then also having pretty significant reserves. Can you, is there anything else that comes to mind or can you like quantify those a little bit more? You're not doing any value add on these deals at all to raise the rents or like, Let's dig into that like, yeah. quote unquote conservative underwriting. Yeah, yeah. To you. Sure. So that deal that I was telling you about that we put an offer in to the owner, it was 216 units. We asked them to carry a note back. So Taylor, that does have a value add component to it. It was property that was built in the late 80s and early 90s. So there will be some value add that needs to be added there. And since he self-manages them, we did a market survey and found that he's about $150 below market on average from his in-place rents. But that's because he, frankly, doesn't want anybody to move. He has very low turnover, very low maintenance expenses. He just assumes for, and that's worked for him because he's owned them for years and years and years. So there are some some value add, and we will underwrite those rents with a with a rent increase. But it's not your eight and nine percent, which may have been the last two years, right? When everybody was doing double digit rent increases on our underwriting models, I think we'll start from three to four percent annual growth, which in my mind is conservative. Some of your listeners may say that's you know ultra conservative. Others may say, well, gosh, we're planning it being flat. Who knows, right? So none of us really have crystal balls, but we all think we do. <laughs> we all <laughs> we can all just use our best guess and go for it. So. 
I was going to say, there's one other thing that we're doing at Obsidian Capital that is right now, specifically in the Austin area, we're actually building some properties from the ground up. So we bought the dirt, we're going through the development process, hired the engineers and the architects. One of them is about to get its certificate of occupancy. So I would say it's like 98% complete, right? You know, all, all the hardware's in and, you know, everything's in for the most part, waiting on the landscaping and the certificate of occupancy. Then we've got another 84 unit and another 81 unit and then 156 unit that's all at different stages. Two of those deals that I mentioned already have the permits issued. So we've gone through the entitlement process. The only thing we haven't done at this point is secured the construction financing. So we're being, you know, we're really kind of searching for what does that look like and, you know, you know who's got the best terms in terms of construction in the Austin area. So we're, we're kicking around a couple of ideas. There's some, there's some debt funds from back east that, you know, we may consider, but really there's also local banks because they know what the Austin area is doing right now. And they have, you know, just as competitive terms, but I think we would rather work with a local bank here that knows the area, knows us rather than a debt fund from back east. So that's, you know, that's also a new strategy for us. And, you know, people are like, why are you building right now? Well, because where the cap rates were and where the rents were, we could literally go build a deal from the ground up and pay less per unit for brand new product than what things are trading for on the open market, you know, for the same or lower rent. So it just, it just makes sense right now for this time. So again, a, a kind of a change okay, in strategy. Okay. So, so exit strategy is always critical with our real estate investments, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about here about capitalizing on, frankly, other people's failed exit strategies. But when you're talking about new construction in a rising interest rate environment and, and rising cap rates, all that kind of a thing, you're, you're talking about, in a way, depressing or reducing the value that a buyer would be willing to pay in the future. Are you anticipating like similar potential issues there in, in selling a newly built property? Or is there, do you feel more comfortable that you'll be able to just hold and, and ride out any of those market disruptions through yeah. the higher rates? Yeah, great question. Those three deals that I just mentioned to you are all long-term holds for us. So those are 10 years. So we're going to do the lease up. We'll just refinance out of the construction, probably straight into, you know, long-term debt, probably dollar for dollar. You know, I think, don't think we'll be able to pull a lot of equity out of the deals just because of where we are in this lending environment but we're going to hold them for 10 years. So, you know, we underwrote them and they've got, they, they spit off cash. So they're just, they're just a nice conservative cash flow deal with new products. It'll stay in our portfolio for 10 years at least. So that should get us past this bump, you know, you know, maybe past an election or two, maybe, you know, and see where we're at then, you know. Interesting. Okay. So a lot of ways to capitalize or, or make a return on this situation, but being well-networked, being aware that others didn't didn't predict this debt environment or didn't prepare for it particularly well, being ready to go after those deals, and then also being prepared to hold your own investment properties for a, for a long time, right? Maybe 10 years isn't quite a long time, but longer than <laughs> people have been holding for this yeah. past market cycle in the, the multifamily space. Yep. So- True, true. Great. Grab oh, a few that, key things that, out of there. That's you're dead on, Taylor. That's exactly what I just covered. So <laughs> perfect, perfect. I, I try. I try to pay attention. Sum it up. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. 
The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Glenn, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before and you've answered those questions. I got three new ones for our returning guests. Are you ready to go? Yeah, fire away. What you got? Great. First one, what is your favorite book, whether a business book or something that you read just for personal enjoyment? Oh, favorite book, the Bible. I read it all the time. But, you know, my book's a pretty good book, The Maintenance Man a Millionaire. You can get through it really fast. As a matter of fact, I was at a, I was at a conference not too long ago sitting at, at, at a table and we were just chit-chatting. It was at lunch. I was sitting next to another couple and they were uh, chit-chatting and I shared a story that occurred to me. And she's like, I've heard that story before. And then she looked at me like I was really weird, like I'm just crazy. And she's like, wait, are you that maintenance man, the millionaire guy? And I'm like, and her husband looked at me like, that's him. We're sitting with him. So I don't know where they got the book from. They, they probably got it from a friend or something. But anyway, it was kind of fun for about 10 seconds. I felt like a celebrity. <laughs> but, you know, one of the really good books that I read recently was, I think it was called, and I forgot the name of the author, but Never Split the Difference. You know, it's a negotiation book that you can really to lean on. Do you have it there with you? That's the one. There's a got great my book. Copy. Chris Voss. Got my Chris copy Voss. Right thank you. Yeah. Great, great. And I learned a lot on that because, you know, there have been negotiation experiences where I've been really frustrated and angry. I've been, you know, I get mad at people and then I walk from deals, but it really taught me, you know, where to keep your mind, your level and some strategies. So you never really have to split the difference. I mean, it is a great book. So, and I really enjoyed it. So, yeah. Awesome. Love it. Three great ones. Appreciate that we dug into that. We have the first question. Now we go to number two. What is a tool, system, piece of software, team member, something in your business that you just could not possibly live without? Wow. She's listening. She's going to ask me for a raise, but we have a transaction manager. Her name's Vivi. She came to us with an intern. She's a she was a graduate from the University of Texas in finance. And when she came to us, she hadn't even graduated college yet. She's been with us, I think, six years now. She took some off, some time off, had a couple of babies, and she's back with us full time. But you know what? This individual, Taylor, when she jumped in, and she was all in, by the way, she was all in with us. She enjoyed the team. She enjoyed what we were doing. She wanted to understand more of the partnership agreements. So she went on her own accord and went and shadowed some of the attorneys just to understand the language, the nuances of our operating agreement with our investors and the subscription agreements. Pretty impressive. And then she later was reviewing title, what we normally get into on the title side, right before closing and title objections and what's on the title report. And she needed, she's like, I need to understand this. So Vivi just dove in and now she's our title expert. So you think about, we call her a transaction manager, but she touches so many pieces. She verifies all the investors that are coming in. She makes sure that we got all the signatures. She dots every I and crosses every T. And, and just really the whole transaction from start to finish, she's part of. Well, she's been doing it for so long. Now we give her 
part of our GP as a bonus. So she's, she's now considered a partner, not necessarily in Obsidian, but in the deals that we put together. And I don't know that we could really, you know, survive without her. I mean, we could teach somebody else to do what Vivi's been doing, but she's really good at what she's doing and she's part of our team. And, and, and that's the thing is we like to create an environment in our office where people come to work because they, they like to come to work, not because they have to come to work. And so anyway, I wouldn't call her a software, but she's a machine. She's the technology. <laughs> she's a machine. And I'm proud of her, you know? So, and Mike likes her too. Mike's very happy with her and, you know, my business partner and he's very savvy. So if Mike likes her, you know, then, then we're good. So. Great. Great. I love it. Sounds like an operations manager, maybe is, is possibly that comes to mind for yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, we've just gotten started in, in 2023 here. Where are you excited to travel this year, 2023? Oh, so I've got a couple of trips planned. I decided to take all my, my sons and son-in-law and dear friends, brother-in-law uh, on a fishing trip. We're going into Mexico and we're going to go bass fishing for these seven, eight to 10 pound bass, right? It's catch and release, but I'm thrilled. Can't wait, you know? So pretty, pretty darn excited about that. Great. Great. Well, love that you're giving back and, and spending some time with family. And Glenn, I want to thank you for joining us today and for coming back on the show. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? So my email is Glenn with two N's at Obsidian Capital Co. So CO.com or just on our website, obsidiancapitalco.com. And people can even register there, become one of our investors if they want, and they get a look at our deals and we put them out. We talk to them on the phone, get to know them a little bit, see if it's a good match, you know, things of that nature. So there you go. That's how you get hold of me. Great. Love it. Well, Glenn, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>